You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you have a chance to get outside the city, away from the drone of traffic and glare of streetlights, what do you hear? Crickets, perhaps, cicadas, but if there are trees or wooded areas nearby, and you're lucky, you might hear the call of an owl. It's an exciting and haunting experience. Owls are such odd birds in the bird world. They're widely distributed, living on every continent except Antarctica, yet elusive. They don't fly around making a racket. They sit and watch. And with their extraordinary hearing and night vision, they occupy a sensory world unfamiliar to most of us. So what happens if we try to experience the world like an owl? We'd surely become a little wiser. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. This episode is Night Flight. The first step in getting to know owls better is meeting them in their habitat. Excited by the prospect of seeing owls, about a dozen of us met for an evening walk led by a man who is professional singer by day and nature guide at night. Hello, I'm Tom Damiani. I'm leading the owl prowl here today, or tonight actually. You have a nice baritone. Uh, is it a baritone? Yeah, I used to be a tenor. Okay, <laughs> nice, now, now a, a nice baritone. tenor. Is that what draws the owls in, or do you actually do an owl call? It's, it's a whistle, you know. It's okay. uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's like a, they call it a horse's whinny. We all gathered in front of a farmhouse in a wooded area on Long Island, while Tom laid out common sense tips before leading us on a walk into the woods. Being as quiet as possible, and when we stop, everybody stops, and you know, try to be still. I think what we're going to do is we're going to walk where it's really dark in there because it's in the woods, the deeper woods, and it is dark in there. And remember, don't use your flashlights unless you feel like you're going to trip or something. And, and when you walk, kind of lift your feet instead of dragging them like that. All right. We were looking for two kinds of owls, the eastern screech owl and the great horned owl. I think a lot of people look at the great horned owl. They have these ear tufts sticking up. And people think those are their ears, but they're not. Their eyes are set forward as a typical predator. The screech owl is, is a lot smaller. It's probably half the size. And they look similar. They have smaller ear tufts. I'm Carl Safina. I'm an ecologist at Stony Brook University. Screech owls are the smallest owls that nest in the region that I live in, which is Long Island, New York. And they are birds of woodlands and woodland edges. 
they are kind of like a very small version of a great horned owl. They don't even screech. They, well, they screech a bit if you do something like grab them. They'll screech as a threat. But normally, they have a whinny that sounds like a little winged horse somewhere up in a pine tree and uh, what's called a tremolo call, which is uh, a trill. And you may also hear a sharp declarative, kind of a whistled who, but very sharp and short. So they have a whole repertoire. Uh, can you do any of them? Could you do the whinny? I'll try to do the trill. Let's see. <laughs> that's, that a, that's a good enough facsimile remarkable. to get an answer. I, I, I can get answers uh, from wild owls with that one. The, the whinny is a little, actually a little harder, although it's simpler. It's just a descending whistle, but, but the way that it whinnies is a little hard to do. Something like that. I have had them answer me, and I've had them fly right in, you know, right overhead. So clearly sometimes it's close enough that they need to check it out, that they think it may be an intruder. Now, what is the guarantee that we'll see owls? I always say 50-50 chance. It may vary even by the time of the year, because there are some times of the year when they are establishing territories and they're doing much more calling, which is really singing. It's the same kind of repetitive call that says, I am here, this is my territory. I am here, where are you? Where are you? This is my territory. I am here. That's basically what they... And sometimes of the year they're doing a lot of that, and other times they're pretty quiet and things are a little bit more relaxed on that front. And hopefully we'll see or hear owls, but uh, realize that just walking at night is just, this is something really cool to do. J just try to take that experience in so, so that it won't, won't be disappointing regardless of what happens. <laughs> so so I, I like this area because it's got that edge, you know? Anytime you bird, you always look for an edge kind of thing going on. So we have this like amphitheater situation happening right here. You got nice woods behind us, but this edge here. So if, if, the, if the birds are deeper in the woods and they, and they hear it, they'll come out to that edge and you're more easily seen than if we were deep in the woods and kind of flying around there. But I'm gonna be calling like that direction, but definitely, you know, everybody kind of just look in different directions because it could come in from any way, coming from, you know, the left, south, east, north, west, we don't know where it's gonna come from. I'm gonna call here because I think that's the best place to do it, but it should be able to hear me behind me or on the sides too, okay? So now I'm gonna call. When we finally do hear an owl, I'll try to find it with my flashlight. If you happen to have a flashlight and I'm not seeing and you see movement, you can certainly get on that. But when you do get on the owl, don't shine it directly in its eyes. So you put it on its body, on its feet, the, the breast, but not directly in the eyes itself. Their eyes are real super sensitive, so that bright light is not, not a good thing to do to them. I wonder if you, knowing owls and other animals the way that you do, if you could imagine a scene where about maybe a dozen humans are walking through the woods, Long Island, and we're looking for owls. But from the owl's perspective, I assume they're in the tree somewhere. What is the scene unfolding for them? Where might they be perched? What are they seeing? What do you, how do you think they're reacting to this scene? Tell us what the owl is. I won't say thinking, but perhaps perceiving. Probably they are perched somewhere near the edge of an opening 
where if they haven't already eaten, they'd be looking for anything ranging from moths and beetles to mice and shrews to small birds that are roosting who would be hiding in dense cover in low bushes probably. I think that's what they would probably be doing. If they've already eaten, they probably would just be sitting there waiting and resting and hanging out. And then all of a sudden, to their extraordinarily sensitive ears, a gigantic amount of noise from people walking through the woods. We were trying to be quiet, I mm-hmm. should say. I'm sure, but I've been out with groups of people, and my impression <laughs> is that more than two people are incapable of remaining quiet. Faith, you can get in your car and go now, <laughs> or you can follow me. We're going down the other side. <laughs> All right, here we go. We kept walking for a while. Tom continued his screech owl calls, and while the night was filled with the sounds of crickets and katydids, we did not hear the whinny or the trill in response. Right, so I guess we'll head back. We called it a night and thanked Tom, but before we parted, I asked whether his singing repertoire included songs about owls, and could he sing one? Owl songs. There's got to be a song. Oh, yeah, there is a song, Walking My Baby Back Home. Owls go by and they give me the eye, walking my baby back home. That's that's the line with owl part in it, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thanks again to our nature guide, Tom Damiani. Owls go by and they give me the eye for walking my baby back home. Well, we did not see an owl that night, but the owl prowl was still a lot of fun. And even though we missed seeing them, we can get to know owls better. And helping us to do that while my co-host Seth Shostak is away is science writer Gordy Slack, who has written extensively about the natural world, including reporting about owls. Hi, Gordy. Hey, Molly. I loved the owl song that Tom sang. (laughs) The idea of him out there singing to the owls in the hope that maybe he can establish some rapport is a a lovely one. First singing in their language and then singing in his language. (laughs) It would be great if they would reply in a human song, but I guess that'll be a few million years before they can do that. You know, I love the idea of the owl walk as a way for humans to try to get closer, not just to owl populations and individual owls, but to the natural world in general. Because you're out there, it's dark, humans are diurnal, they're not made for those habitats or that time of day, and so our senses all become super heightened, and we put our own minds behind the eyes of these owls that we're looking for. And whether you find them or not, it's just a great exercise. You are a big fan of owls. In fact, I don't know who is not a big fan of owls. And can you make the case for getting to know the owl better? I think so. I mean, unlike most other birds, owls are almost all nocturnal. And so they occupy a part of the world that makes humans very uncomfortable uh, on the whole. So Right away, when you go to look for owls, you find yourself immersed in a part of nature that um, heightens your senses, that gets you out of your habitual ways of thinking. 
Owls have been fascinating to every culture we know of because of their nocturnal natures and their weird sounds, weird and wonderful sounds. But they also look kind of like people. You know, when you look into an owl's face, it's a lot more like looking into a human face than most birds. Their heads are kind of boxy and their eyes are in front of their faces, unlike most birds. And they will just look at you with both eyes at the same time um, the way another person might, a small feathered person. <laughs> now here's the sound of a real screech owl. Ecologist Carl Safina is often called upon to care for injured animals in the wooded area on Long Island where he lives. One of them became the basis for an illuminating and endearing relationship that he describes in his book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Well, Carl, you began a close relationship a couple years ago with a screech owl you named Alfie. When you met her, she was in bad shape and near death. Could you describe how you met her and what her circumstances were? I got a text with a photo of a very, very bedraggled-looking little fluffy—well, not even fluffy. Her down was all matted. It, it was a bird— and it was from a wildlife rehabilitator, and the question was, do you know what kind of bird this bedraggled little thing is? And I said, well, it, it's an owl, and judging from how small it is and that it's a nestling here, it's a screech owl. And her eyes were closed. She was probably 10 days old or so. So a thing about that, there's a couple of things about that. One, one is that they nest inside cavities, like holes in trees and they can't fall out of a deep nest. So something must have been raiding the nest and dropped her partway to where she was being carried. So maybe a crow had found the nest and was raiding it, and maybe she's the only survivor. I, I don't know. But um, at any rate, there was no apparent nest in sight. In the book you describe, she was covered in maggots. And she was covered with worried fly about, eggs, oh, which, fly which eggs. if they had hatched, the maggots would immediately just start burrowing into her and eating her from the inside out. So she was, you know, a couple of hours away probably from dying, but the rehabber cleaned her and warmed her up really nicely. The rehabber w was very good at stabilizing the bird, and uh, a couple of weeks later, she was at our home with the owl. She had actually been house-sitting for us, and then she had to go overseas for a fellowship, and I just said, well, leave the owl here. We'll manage a soft release in our backyard because I've had a lot of birds. I've done a lot of rehab. I know how to do all of this. Soft release. What is that? A soft release is when you allow a young animal to basically just widen its circle of movement until it wanders off on its own. And meanwhile, you're still supplementing food while they learn how to forage. And that's the way it would normally happen in nature. Normally with owls, they leave the nest and then for about three weeks, the parents are feeding them. While they are getting stronger, they are learning how to maneuver, they're starting to hunt. So we wanted to replicate that. You said that you have worked with many wild animals. You've actually helped injured wild animals to heal. But yet, you also write that bringing Elfie home was a little nerve-wracking. And you said that, like all babies, she did not come with instructions. What are the particular challenges of nursing a little owl to health? 
There were a couple of things, I think. The fir first thing is good food. And uh, they eat, basically, they eat animal food. They eat insects. They eat um, meat of various kinds, you know, in the form of rodents and small birds. In the South, they eat lizards and snakes, too. And um, they eat fish. So immediately, you know, the thing was, here's a little little owl that needs good quality food. So we procured good quality food for her in a variety of ways. And uh, the second thing is that I wanted her to have plenty of stimulation and freedom of movement. So she was never in a cage. And that was important also. Was she indoors and outdoors? Sometimes she was in your house and sometimes she was outdoors near a, a chicken coop. But there was wiring around that, wasn't well, there? Well, the thing is that the plan went a little awry because her flight was delayed. She did not get two-thirds of the feathers that create flight on her wings. Two-thirds of her wings were bare when she should have just been able to go. And she was only capable of flopping around. And then by the time that I waded through a molt to see that those feathers would come in properly and that she would, in fact, be able to fly, because I was afraid maybe she would just have to be captive and unreleasable for her whole life. But um, by that time, it was getting to be mid-autumn, and food was getting you know, a lot less abundant. Normally, a wild owl would be learning all summer long how to catch bugs and then how to catch mice and how to hunt for small birds. But now here she was, able to fly for the first time with all the food either going away, literally, or just much, much less abundant, and she had the ability to fly and no skills. So at that point, I customized the outdoor part of our chicken coop for her, and we kept her in a protective custody through the winter and the spring until early the next summer I started flight training with her and hunting training with her by pulling a fake mouse on a string. And, you know, the thing is, they, f they fly instinctively and they chase instinctively, but to catch something requires a lot of skill. And that's what I was trying to help her get. So when you describe uh, feeding Alfie, the image that is coming to mind is you running around catching beetles and crickets and mice. Um, how did you feed her? I, what did, I, I actually I don't remember the first thing I fed her, but in an extreme pinch, I probably would have just gotten a little bit of chicken from the supermarket for her and cooked it, of course. Um, <laughs> but uh, I know I, I did catch a lot of crickets for her. I but you caught, did feed her mice. I caught a few mice, and I fed her a lot of mice that I bought online. You can buy mice online because there are a lot of people who have pet snakes and things like that, and there's a there's a whole little industry to provide rodents for them. Do they come alive and then you kill them? Luckily for me, they come frozen. Coming up, the extraordinary way owls perceive the world as we continue our night flight on this episode of Big Picture Science. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Walking through the woods at night looking for owls, I found that I had to rely more on my hearing as my eyes adjusted to the darkness. It was a way to consider what it means to experience the world the way nocturnal animals do, such as owls. Carl Safina describes the keen sensory perception of owls and how we might be enlightened by taking time to observe other animals, as he did with an injured owlet who came into his care that he named Alfie. My whole life with animals and my whole career as an ecologist, I think, has given me an extension of observational orientation and maybe and maybe skill, I would say, to see a lot of the non-human world. And I know that a lot of people don't see a lot of this. They're not, you know, they're not oriented to it. They don't look for it. They don't know what's there to look for. And, you know, and to a much different extent, I do. But with with Alfie, because her freedom coincided with the shutdowns of the COVID pandemic, I had nowhere to go and nothing better to do than to watch her and eventually watch her with her mate and her family in my backyard. And I did that for about five hours a day. If Owls aside, if you sat in your backyard looking and listening for five hours a day, you would see a lot that you don't see. You really sat in your backyard for five hours a day? Yes. And watched the owls? Yes. I would often get up a little before dawn, and, I, and I'd watch through first light and dawn, and then the same kind of thing around sunset and sundown, two or three hours each time. And a and kind of amusing thing is I say to people, I watch the owls for five hours a day, and they say, oh, how could you do that? Isn't that boring? And a lot of those people sit in a cubicle in an office for eight hours a day, which <laughs> would be impossible for me to do. You have this little owl in your care, and can you describe your relationship to it and how it was changing, like how you were beginning to feel some... I mean, I suppose affection is a mild way of putting it, but you were really getting attached. And how was she relating to you, and was she afraid, or was she in such a vulnerable state that she was, and had maybe never met a human before, that she was tamed or she was calm in your presence? Did that take time? It did not take any time, because literally from the time she opened her eyes, there were people there, and the people had always only taken good care of her. So she was never nervous around us at all. And that didn't surprise me. And uh, Maybe you I, were a little more nervous around her. I th- maybe. Yes, maybe. I, I thought we would only have her for, uh, you know, a week or two. What did very much start to surprise me was how extremely interactive she was. And then in some ways, how playful she was at that at that age, which she liked to play and grab things and pounce on things. And uh, sometimes she would come looking for us. If she was alone, she'd be fine for a little while. And then sometimes she would come looking for us. And if she found us, she would stay in our presence for a while as, as though our presence made her feel a little safer, which I, I really think is the case. I think that's why she did that. So... It started to become much more of a two-way kind of a thing, and that was surprising. And, of course, I think at the point in which we weren't just taking care of her, but she was responding to us, I started to realize that there was just a lot more depth in that little personality, and it was a two-way thing. 
Did you ever feel like you had to struggle with anthropomorphism, that you found yourself, you know, describing the owl in human terms, and is that okay to do? Can we talk about the owl loving you or or being playful? Or do you worry about that, or did you ever struggle with how to describe it? No, because uh, really anthropomorphism is when you project human thoughts and emotions onto other creatures. But if you observe their emotional and intellectual capacities, you're not anthropomorphizing. A lot of times scientists say, or and we're taught as, as scientists in training, you're not allowed to attribute human thoughts and emotions to other creatures. But that's not scientific. In science, you're supposed to go with what the evidence shows. The fact of the matter is we are organically related. We have the same basic nervous system, and we have exactly the same hormones that create mood and motivation. So if an animal acts like they're hungry, it's because they're hungry. If they act like they're afraid, and you can obviously see what they're afraid of, if, if a, a cat or an unfamiliar dog comes in the room and a bird shrieks or cat comes in the yard and all the birds fly off the bird feeder, it's because they're afraid. That's totally appropriate. There's no other reasonable response to or explanation for what their motive is. We have the same vertebrate nervous system. So, you know, to say, oh, you can't say they're afraid or you can't say they're experiencing well-being or you can't say that they enjoy doing something useless that they're doing over and over again when they're playing. Um, I mean, just look at dogs. Dogs obviously have these emotions and they obviously have some thoughts and little plans. If they go to the door and bark, it's because they need to go out or they want to go out. They have desires, they have needs, and these things feel to them that these are motivations that make them do things. Does so that that's include, not anthropomorphizing. And does it include love? Do you think that Alfie loves you, loved you? Well, love is a huge range of emotions and motives. It's a, it's a simple word that we apply to uh, a ridiculous array of things. We can say, I love my mother, I love my children. I love this I, coffee. I love this coffee. I love ice cream. I love going shopping for shoes. So what in the world does love mean? But if, you, if it means the kind of feeling that makes you want to be near someone that you know well, then they do love you and dogs do love you. Yes. Now, as her adult feathers come in, she's this gorgeous tapestry of ginger and white. Could you describe this? Because you say you could hardly take your eyes off of her. And also, how are those stripes and that, that pattern, how is that adaptive for mm -hmm, an owl? Sure. Well, the, the first set of feathers is like gray flannel pajamas. And, and I have to say, as a human, they look really adorable, those little <laughs> baby owls. And comfortable. So, yes. And then they molt into what you're describing, this kind of ginger and white. Um, I mean, there's a long, long list of words you can use to describe them. They have white little eyebrows. They have those ear tufts that look like cat's ears, but those are just feathers. They have that facial disc of feathers that really gives them a face that humans relate to. Their body is barred and streaked, um, sort of alternating cream and chocolate and ginger. And all of that part is camouflage for them because if, if they get really uncomfortable, you know, if they see a predator 
and they want to hide, they don't move and hide, they stretch, and then all of those streaks look like tree bark, and those little ear tufts go up, and they just look like twigs. They are really, really hard to see in a tree if they're doing that. Amazing. As, as Alfie learned to fly, you write that she would alight from a bookshelf or a chair, and then she'd be gone, and it was surprising because you never heard her do it. How is an owl's wing designed to produce these remarkable silent flights? They are completely silent. If she flies directly across my face, I cannot hear a thing. And that is created basically by little structures all over their feathers that break up the flow of air that would create little whistling noises. So uh, the trailing edges of the feathers have tiny, tiny little fringes. You don't see them as fringes. You'd have to look with at least a magnifying glass, maybe a microscope. The same thing with the leading edge. And the other thing is their whole body is very, very, very soft because the whole body, even, even the feathers that look smooth, they have a little microscopic layer of fluff on them, and that breaks up the flow of air. It makes them silent. And how are Alfie and other owls adapted for nightlife? One of the features is they're silent. One of the features for hunting at night is that they're silent, and another is that they see very well in very low light. One thing about that is that some owls have such fine hearing. Well, all owls have very fine hearing. Their ears are big openings on the side of their head, and they are asymmetrical, one a little higher than the other. So they can detect the direction sound is coming from better than anything. And in total darkness, in a dark room with no windows with the doors closed, they can catch mice by the sound of a mouse moving around. Because the asymmetry means that one set of sound waves is reaching, uh, I mean, the sound waves are reaching one side of the head just slightly later than, than the other side? Well, maybe think of it this way. We, we know what direction sound is coming from because it hits one ear at a different time than it hits the other ear, and we instinctively turn toward the one it hit first. But they also have one ear that's a little higher. So not only left and right, but up and down is very easy for them. So they can really, really detect the direction that the sound is coming from very, very finely. Why do they hunt at night? Because there are other things hunting during the day, and there are a lot of things to eat that are active only at night that are not accessible to day predators like hawks. So, you know, there are different kinds of animals that are adapted basically round the clock to making a living in all these different ways. Owls are the hunters of the night, the aerial hunters of the night. And you said they have exquisite eyesight. So while we were walking through those woods, they were certainly hearing us, but they were seeing us too. Even though we couldn't see them, they were in their perches looking down at those animals traipsing through their habitat. Yes, absolutely. In fact, when I, we're getting a little ahead of the Alfie story, but when her first brood of chicks was out of the nest, they would they would roost for a few weeks. They would roost within... 20 feet of the same spot up about about 15 or 20 feet off the ground in a couple of young maple trees right at the side of our street. And very frequently, people would jog by with all of the owls, the three, three chicks, the two adults, all watching these people walking and jogging and talking. And they, of course, had absolutely no idea they were being surveilled. You know, I wondered, as I read how you cared for Alfie, 
and other owls that came into your care. We know that predator and prey relationships define the relationships in nature. But was it hard for you to balance the protective emotions that were involved in the care for one animal while watching it feed on another animal? Because in the case where it's maybe a sparrow, I could imagine a situation where you would care for an injured sparrow. So how do you balance those emotions of the protective care and also letting nature do its thing? Well, I mean, we're stuck with the world we're stuck with in in many ways. That's that's the world we're in. The world we're in is that plants make, animals take. And I, I do have all of those feelings. And I you know, and I've been on different sides of that. I've I've cared for animals that are prey to other animals. I've cared for animals that are predators to other animals. I've actually seen mice that were brought to the nest by Alfie's mate. And, um, you know, I've kind of like looked to see, was that mouse nursing young ones when she was caught? I mean, these things happen in the world. There's no way around that on this planet anyway. So emotionally, you have to find yourself in somewhere in the, as you're watching this very closely. I mean, not everyone is watching. Well, the way that I, the way that I find it, 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 find my place in that question is these things, yes, they are in some way very distressing, but they work. They've, they've worked for life on this planet for several billion years. And because that system works and it has proliferated and covered this entire planet with extraordinarily abundant life, um, I'm not really one to criticize that system, despite my emotional responses to some of it. Where, whereas what people are doing to the world is actually undermining the ability of the world to support life and, and destabilizing the life-supporting systems on the planet. There's a word that describes how an animal experiences the world and applies to plants, too. Um, that is how their senses take it in, and it's called umwelt. Uh, You've described some of it in describing Alfie and other owls, but could you say more about the umwelt of an owl? Sure. There are a lot of people who think that uh, the way that a different species perceives is completely different and unknowable from the way that a human perceives, and that is demonstrably not true. There's a very significant amount of overlap between the way that most vertebrates, let, let's just say mammals and birds, for instance, perceive in the way that we do. They have eyes to see, so they have a visual sense of the world. Many of them have a colored sense of the world. We, we know that some of them see colors we cannot see. We know some of them hear frequencies we cannot hear, but there's overlap in what they see. There's overlap in what they hear. We have a sense of smell. We know it's not nearly as good as a dog's, but we know what a sense of smell is like. And we know that most birds, like owls, have a quite poor sense of smell, although some have a quite good sense of smell. We know that they have a sense of touch. We, we know that when they see something that they want to catch move, they feel motivated to chase it. So these things, I think, are all very, very comprehensible. On top of that, with a few birds, like parrots and like Alfie the owl, they enjoy physical affection because they preen each other, the mates preen each other, the young and the adults preen each other. That is a bonding function. Mammals, certain mammals preen each other, people preen each other, 
and they enjoy being preened. Why do I say they enjoy? Because they will come to you. They, they will solicit your preening, often by just bowing their head, and then they'll lean into it. So there's a lot of overlap. What is really different is that when, when the night goes completely dark for us, a lot of animals actually can see quite well. A lot of them can hear much better or smell much better. Many of them have superhuman powers, really. And the three-dimensionality that flight gives you is something I think we can kind of easily imagine, but it's got to be, you know, it's got to feel very different for them, just the ability to move so freely. I love how Carl describes that when night goes dark for us, the world comes alive for Alfie and other owls. It's such a great exercise to imagine what the experience of another animal, especially a wild animal, is like when it's so different than ours. And it's it's very rare. To actually have a relationship with one, yes. I mean, it's one thing to see an animal in the distance or maybe uh, that animal comes into your yard <laughs> every mm-hmm. day. Those are brief encounters. Um, what strikes you about what's revealed by Carl's account of having a sustained relationship with the wild animal? Does it contribute anything new to our understanding of wild animals? I think it does. Carl spent so much time with Alfie, five hours a day over many months. and that, That's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a great way to pass the time to me. Um, he, he was able to watch her evolve as an individual, not just as a representative of the species, but as an individual living being. And that insight that owls and other wild animals are individuals is one we don't often get to uh, appreciate. And that that has consequences for how we regard these other beings on this planet, uh, these other living creatures. Absolutely. For one thing, it reveals to us or reminds us that there are relatives. And as Carl says, they're close relatives. They're built like we are out of the same ingredients. They have the same physical structure and the same neurological makeup. Right. If you compare us to plants, for example, (laughs) we resemble Alfie more than we do a hydrangea. Or a cockroach. Yeah. And it's like finding a fantastic cousin that you didn't know you were related to. And being able to explore your relationship to them is just such such a treasure, such an opportunity. Well, coming up, Carl asks, does Alfie even know she's an owl? And he makes an attempt to release her into the wild. And what do you think, Gordy? Do you think he'll be successful releasing her? I think he might have a harder time breaking the relationship off than she does. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll see what happens next as we continue this night flight on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We continue our conversation with ecologist Carl Safina about the owl that came into his care, named Alfie, and what it means to leave room for the stunning diversity of animals on this planet, something that Dr. Safina has referred to as the other living world. His book is Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. As you cared for this little owl, you worried that because she was in protective custody, as you said, um, she might not develop her wild instincts. And you observed that she needed meaningful risks, which I thought was an interesting phrase and an important one. And you asked, does Alfie realize she's an owl? What are meaningful risks for an owl? And did Alfie realize, or when did she realize she was an owl? I think, you know, in my training, I would have said in a professional sense that Alfie was imprinted, that that her identity was that she was one of us, that she would have thought that she was basically a human animal, didn't really know what she was. But that turned out to be completely not true. She just very gracefully and fully summoned her owlness. And we saw that immediately when a wild owl came to be her suitor as she began her free-flying life, and she responded very appropriately, although the very interesting thing was that at first she was very, very tentative and not trusting. At first, when he tried to provide food for her, she was not very accepting. Fairly quickly, they got comfortable with each other. So this was a process, not unlike the process that we know in human courtship. You're, you're a little tentative at first. You're not exactly sure who you're, who you're interacting with. You get to know them better. You get more trusting. You get more relaxed. The same thing with physical mating. At first, she was very, very awkward and unskilled. And then the, the sex came much, much more easily, much more avidly in that whole courtship period. That was the main thing that I got was that all of these little nuances, not just birds behave this way, owls do this during courtship, but that courtship was a, a an unfolding process, not a categorical phase. Did you observe all of that? But you that watched was, the courtship and absolutely. you watched, I watched the all of this all stuff. Of that. Yes, because mm-hmm. Alfie was completely tame with me and I could watch her at point blank range and her her suitor was taking his cues from her. At, at first, he was much more hesitant about our presence. And then, you know, kind of watching her, kind of being cued to her and kind of just me being there all the time, it got to the point where I could easily be about 30 feet away and he would just do all, all of his normal stuff, hunting, delivering food, 
initiating, mating, all of that stuff with, with no regard to the fact that I was just standing there taking notes or taking photographs. And with Alfie, she couldn't have cared less if I was literally right next to her, right at the nest. So some version of having the parents sit in on that first date when you're a teenager and they're in the room. Oh, God, what a horrible thought that is. But (laughs) Of course, you never relax in that case. I guess, yeah. And as far as the meaningful risks, I mean, life life is dangerous. Safety is a a total dead end. We could stay in bed all the time and be safe. That would not be life. So to have any kind of shot at, you know, the great chain of being and to exert all of her capacities physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally with her mate, the possibility of you know, procreating, that required the risks of freedom. And the risks of freedom have to do with being subject to the dangers of very bad weather, of predation from things like the Cooper's hawks that come through our yard, all the cats that come through our yard, and um, the possibility of getting sick, the possibility of starving, especially in the winter. That is life. As Alfie gets stronger, you embark on a series of attempts to let her go, and there were some moments where you couldn't do it. You intended to let her go, and you weren't able to do it, and you'd put it off for another day. Could you describe the process by which you did release her back to the wild? I was I was coaxing her out of the coop to come and get food and to, to chase the fake mouse on a string and things like that. And then usually I would put her right back. One day she just touched my arm and went up in a tree. And, and this started a series of for over, a, over a short period of time of me trying to get her down and put her in the coop again because I was afraid to have her just free so suddenly. Uh, but when I did that, I then I almost immediately realized, well, isn't that what this is all about? Shouldn't I have just left her out and left the door open, which I then did. Um, there was one very, very rainy night I intended to leave the door open, and I thought, I don't want her loose for the first time in a total downpour. I don't know if she can cope with that. Uh, so I waited one day. But then, then I just, you know, as I said, I have to rip the Band-Aid off here and take the plunge. And? And my, my worst fear happened. She disappeared for a whole week. We left food out. It wasn't taken. She was not around. But then she came back one night at 11 p.m. She just landed on our deck and, or in a tree on our deck. And um, she has never left. She centered her territory around our home. She attracted a wild mate. They raised three young ones in a box that I put up on the outside of my writing studio. And the whole cycle of life went off perfectly. Couldn't have been a better ending. It it could not have been better. And is Alfie still part of your world? Alfie is very much part of our world. We still see her at least several times a week. And she still lives somewhere in and around our backyard, although I'm not always sure where. She has a couple of favorite roosts, one one of which I know rather well, and, and the others I don't know where they are. Well, finally, Carl, the last time we spoke for this program, you said something to me which I've often quoted. You had corrected me when I said, well, it sounds like we need to make room for other animals. And you said, no, we should leave room for them. They were here first. And how well are we doing in that endeavor? And what can people do 
individually or collectively to ensure that we leave room? I know that this is a big question, but if we if we think about your relationship with Alfie and what was revealed was that the world, the natural world, is a series of relationships. I would assume that that is one place where we start to leave room for other animals. Sure, that's true. We're, we're doing catastrophically in that regard. Something like 96% of all the mammals in the world are now livestock and human beings. The wild animals are being banished from the face of the earth. So we need to leave room, and many of us can make some room. Um, many of us live somewhere where there's a backyard or something like that. One of the things I do is I simply never use any pesticides on anything. We try to have a safe backyard. The last few years I have stopped mowing the lawn in the spring and early summer. Gets to be a very shaggy lawn, but that lawn gets to be full of fireflies. So, And then later, at the grass goes to seed, and I see lots of sparrows coming to our yard to eat the grass seeds. So we have a little habitat there. People can plant pollinator gardens. You can plant a pollinator garden on a terrace or on a roof. You can do these little things that matter. You can try to buy organically grown food and be aware of some of the implications of what you're eating. So we make decisions every day that matter to other living things. And just realizing that makes a big difference. I wonder if stopping to observe an animal, a wild animal, would also help. Now, we can't all spend five hours watching owls, although we might want to, but actually taking the time to watch an animal and consider its world, its umwelt, that it has a right to be in this world, too, instead of just passing by as though they were the background to our lives. Sure, or not even there. I, I frequently stop and watch all kinds of little things. I, I just find... Almost all kinds of animals, really beautiful. I just, I just enjoy them, and everything they do seems to interest me. But if you, you know, if you, if you get in with a group of bird watchers, for instance, you, you will have your eyes really opened to the incredible diversity and beauty that is in any region. I mean, in, we're in New York City right at the moment. In, in this region right here, there's probably 300, roughly 300 species of birds that either nest or migrate through this region alone. On a good day during spring migration, a, a really good birder can see 100 species. I think most people, if you ask them to name 10 species of wild birds, they wouldn't know. So but, one, one species of the human animal and 300 species of birds are here in the city. Right. There's a little perspective in that. <laughs> Carl Safina is an ecologist at Stony Brook University, and he is the author of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Carl, thank you so much for joining us again on the program. Well, this was a lot of fun and uh, much too brief. So, Gordy, now we come to the big picture of the show. What is it for you in this episode about owls? One thing that really stood out is the discussion that you two had about there being so many species, I think 300 species of birds in New York City and one species of upright primate. So the story that we tend to think of as human-centric of what's happening in New York, I mean, of course, what's happening is largely about human beings, but take a step back and what's happening is about birds. <laughs> 
I mean, birds and insects and rats. And rats. We, and we know rats too. Huh? <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. And so I just love how Carl is able to shift the emphasis from a bird, an owl as an object to an owl as an unfolding story and a living being with, with interests and loves and needs. And then on top of all of that, it is just a pure joy <laughs> to go from the one column of the human-made world and step into the column of the wild world and get to know it a little bit better. I couldn't agree more. You often hear about this epidemic of loneliness. Well, there's a huge world of possible relationships out there in your closet, in the tree outside in your house. Um, in your closet? Sure. I mean, there's spiders. <laughs> <laughs> there are ants. As E.O. Wilson once said, if you want to find the most interesting thing in, in your house, just leave a little bit of honey out for the ants to find. And, and you, know, you can have a thousand relationships. And even just... Even if it is limited to observation, which it mostly should be, still, there are whole worlds out there to discover in our yards, in the trees, along our streets. And it's a world we share with these magnificent relatives of ours. Well, Gordy, thank you for taking this night flight with us and helping us put ourselves into the uh, feathered shoes of owls. It was my pleasure, Molly. Gordy Slack is a science writer who writes about the natural world. This show would not be possible without the wisdom from senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that considers the world from an owl's point of view is called Night Flight. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.